Welcome to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your loyalty, especially those of you who have followed my podcasting career since I hosted the Outspoken Oncology. We've started the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast a couple of months ago, and I appreciate your feedback and your continued listening. Today, it's really my pleasure to host Dr. Stacy Dusitzina. Dr. Dusitzina is an associate professor in health policy the Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She has really in-depth understanding of drug prices, drug purchasing, how we deal with Medicare Part B, Part A, Part D, everything Medicare, like no one I know. I look always forward to her statements, her tweets, her comments, her articles, to better understand the policy behind what is happening with Medicare. And that is so important because that's really what our patients, elderly patients, rely on to have access to life-saving drugs. And in fact, recently, Dr. Dusitzina had a, a very important article in the New England Journal of Medicine that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I urge you to uh, read it. It came just in December 2020. Frankly, every few months, she has an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I think you will enjoy this episode, learning a lot about Medicare Part D and drug coverage. But more importantly, I will talk to Stacy about how changes in the administration might affect uh, Medicare coverage and the impact on patients. I think uh, we all know that sometimes the political landscape in the country does have a direct impact on healthcare policy and really on how patients get treated and their coverage and so forth. So that's going to be very important for us to really dissect and talk about. Before I air the episode that I taped with uh, Dr. Dusitzina, I really would like to ask for your support. You can find the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast on any podcast outlet. You can find it on iTunes, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on TuneIn, on Stitcher, pretty much any podcast outlet. I would appreciate if you take some time and subscribe, rate the podcast, give the podcast the number of stars you believe the podcast deserves. Write a brief review. Refer the podcast to a colleague or a friend. I'm sure there are a couple of episodes that some of your friends might be interested in, depending on where they fit on the healthcare spectrum. I appreciate your support. And without further ado, Dr. Stacy Dusitzina on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast.
Dr. Dusadzina, welcome to the show. Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's a pleasure to be with you. We've, we've, uh, we've had you on my older podcast, The Outspoken Oncology. So it's always a treat to have you uh, again, to learn from you and from everything you're doing. Uh, for folks who are listening, uh, maybe a little bit about you in terms of uh, what you're doing and um, what got you interested in health policy. It seems um, it's, it's obviously an exciting topic right now because goodness, I mean, but what got you interested in it? Sure. So um, I'm a health services researcher by training, and I spend almost all of my time thinking about prescription drugs and how people use them. And I think I first became interested in prescription drugs as my first uh, first job right out of college was working in the pharmaceutical industry. And As I kind of worked in the industry, I then started to realize I wanted to be the boss and ask all the research questions myself. And so my training took me down a path of getting a PhD in pharmaceutical science. And I wanted to understand how populations use medicine kind of broadly, like what are the ways that people use medicine and have slowly kind of moved my way into health policy because health policies are a key barrier or facilitator to accessing medication. So after my postdoc, I really started to move kind of squarely into the health policy space, recognizing that policies can be really one of the key contributors to why people maybe aren't using medications like we think they should be. And that includes things like out-of-pocket costs, um, being a problem for patients, um, and even just kind of poor benefits design that that makes it harder for people to take medication as um, their providers would intend. So Stacy, does this mean that if we fix prescription drug problems, you'll be out of a job? Yeah, and I plan at that point to go and work for the national parks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to the day. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit. Let's try to simplify things, right, for folks who are listening. We have Medicare and non-Medicare. So we have, you know, government paid insurance and we have obviously private insurance and we probably need to have a different um, podcast for the uninsured population. It's probably beyond the scope. It's fair to say that prescription drug coverage, obviously vastly different, right? Between in private insurance and, and government. And we're going to focus on government. Yeah, absolutely. We can focus on government. I'd say the way that I typically think about things are, you know, we have these large groups of people with different insurance. We have people on Medicaid, that's for people with lower incomes. Typically, I I don't spend much time thinking about what's going on with that group because cost is not a barrier to access. So I spend more time thinking about groups where cost may be a barrier. That includes privately insured people, who are in this kind of underinsured category, and then um, people on Medicare Part D. Medicare Part D is for seniors, so everybody 65 and older, and they are a huge group of people who use a lot of prescription drugs. So like at that age, you start to see more comorbidities, more like health conditions, more cancers. So they tend to be a large group of people who use a lot of drugs. And the policies are pretty standardized. So the Medicare Part D program has a set of rules that have to be followed. So when you're thinking about if you want to understand the effect of a policy, 
Part D is pretty straightforward because it's got kind of a prescribed design. So if you want to explain, you know, like if something's not working with it, it's actually broken for a lot of people. So you, you have more opportunities to make change. And I guess for the uninsured, that is obviously a very high risk group for not taking medications because medications are really expensive if you don't have health insurance. But one of the biggest policy solutions for that is helping people get health insurance. So making that more affordable, taking away the barriers that keep people out of health insurance that's available to them. So I tend to also not focus as much on the uninsured because I think one of the key ways we make drugs more affordable for them is to get them covered. Right, and I think, and I, I don't, we're not gonna probably discuss the Affordable Care Act, but that was at least a proposed solution to for the uninsured, although, I mean, the jury is out how effective it was. I mean, I, I, I'll admit, I, I'm not, you know, I'm on the fence. Like I can't really tell. I'm taking politics aside from a policy mm -hmm. perspective. You can see both sides, right, on that? Yeah, I mean, I think for some people it was very effective. If you are a person who was uninsured and you get a subsidy to help pay your cost when you enroll in a health exchange plan, then you have access to pretty affordable care. For the people who have kind of more income, that group ends up not getting subsidized care and then having to pay a lot for what is not necessarily the most generous health insurance plan. So I completely agree that it didn't really help people who were kind of higher income earners because they had to pay a lot for what's generally not viewed as, you know, probably as generous of health insurance as you would want for the price that you have to pay. The other issue is, is that, you know, some of it is just like based on how the policies were passed, you know, when the Supreme Court ended up rejecting the Medicaid expansion, that left a bunch of people who were very low income completely locked out of the market. So they, in Southern states primarily who haven't expanded Medicaid, you have this group of people who are low income who don't get any subsidies to help them with their out-of-pocket costs for enrolling in the exchange because they have like very low income and would have been covered by Medicaid. So you have all these kind of really messed up situations where it's like, okay, well, we, we need to fix that. The only ways to fix that are through Medicaid expansion or extending subsidies to people with the lowest incomes. Okay. So let's start with, let's talk Medicare Part D. If you want to simplify to a listener how Medicare Part D uh, works, what, what would you say? How would you explain that to them? I would say that Medicare Part D is a mess when we think about whether or not it's a simple way that it works, partly because there are four distinct phases of the benefit. So under the standard design, you have a deductible of now $445 is the standard deductible. Then the beneficiaries go into this initial coverage phase where if you're the person filling the drugs, you pay 25%. Then you go into the coverage gap. And this is all based on how much drug spending you have over the course of the year. In the coverage gap now, 
because it was closed with the Affordable Care Act, you only pay 25% of the drug's price. So that's your next phase. The tricky part is, is that manufacturers pay 70% of the drug's price in the coverage gap. So, and that counts as out-of-pocket spending if you're taking a brand name drug. Then when you have a cumulative out-of-pocket spending of, I think it's $6,550, I believe is the current day, like 2021 benefit, you go into the catastrophic phase. At that point, you pay 5% through the end of the calendar year. So one other thing is that in the initial coverage phase, depending on the drugs you're filling, you could pay a copay or a coinsurance, like a percentage of the drug's price versus a flat fee. So I've done some work looking at how Medicare plans cover insulin. Most of them cover insulin at like a $40 copay during that initial phase. But once you go into the coverage gap, almost all plans switch you to a 25% coinsurance. So that goes from about $40 to like $140 out of pocket, just as you spend money over the course of the year. So after telling you all that, you can imagine that if you are filling medications under Part D, that it's really hard to predict how much you will pay at any given time as you're filling your drugs. So like you go to the pharmacy and the drug that you just got for $40 in the next visit to the pharmacy could cost you $140. So it's not super predictable from a fill to fill. And it's also kind of messy. And Stacy, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Part D started under the Bush administration. Yeah. And then we had Obama and then we had Trump. So we had, we had a Republican administration. We had a Democratic uh, administration. We had um, uh, another Republican administration. I mean, it, it seems to me that, uh, has there been any changes since Bush introduced Part D yes. until now? Okay. Yeah, so the biggest change, when the benefit was first designed and um, introduced, so it was passed in the Medicare Modernization Act in 2003, and then it was implemented in 2006. So January 2006 is when it went into effect. So at that point, there was the donut hole or the coverage gap. What that was when it first passed was that you had to pay 100% of the drug's price once you entered the coverage gap. Today, to get to the coverage gap, you have to spend about $4,000 in total drug spending, which you know, like you can actually add up pretty quickly if you're taking brand name drugs, like Anticoagulants, for example, which a lot of people use, are you know four or five hundred dollars per fill. So you can imagine, even if that were the only drug you took by like October, you're hitting the coverage gap. And a lot of people, especially Medicare beneficiaries, take a lot of medicine so they can get there faster. So you'd go from spending either a copay or coinsurance 25% for your drug in the initial phase to paying a full price, full list price for the drug. That was not working. So like there are great papers showing that everybody had stopped taking their chronic disease meds when they hit the coverage gap. And then in January, when their benefit reset, they'd start taking them again. So, the Obama administration with the Affordable Care Act, one of the few changes they made to the Medicare program 
with the Affordable Care Act was to close the donut hole. So they took it from 100% out-of-pocket cost for the patient and slowly reduced it over a period of about 10 years from 100% down to 25%. The Trump administration also made changes. Let me step back. The, other, the way that they closed the donut hole in the Affordable Care Act was to ask drug manufacturers to pay 50% of the drug's price for brand name drugs. For generics, the health plans would just start to pick up a higher and higher percentage. So that's, that was part of the Affordable Care Act. The Trump administration had passed, I wanna say it was in 2018, the Bipartisan Budget Act. And in that, they actually changed a few details of the coverage gap. And the one thing that they changed in particular was they increased what manufacturers had to pay from 50% in the coverage gap to 70%. And they closed the donut hole one year ahead of schedule. So it was supposed to be closed in 2020 and they just went ahead and closed it for patients to the 25% coinsurance back in 2019. There've been some changes and, and that probably doesn't sound like that many changes for such a big program, but they, um, you know, there are some benefits to consumers. Like if you've gone from spending 100% of the drug's price and now you're down to 25%, that's a really big improvement. And, and these, these prescription drugs, I mean, anything from hypertension to anti-cancer pills, right? I mean, anything that I'm prescribing by, by mouth, it's included. Yeah. So... In general, anything that is self-administered by the patient is covered under Part D. Anything that is infused or provided by the physician is under Part B, the medical benefit. And you can kind of typically think of most health plans as set up in the same way. Even on private health plans, you know, you'll get orally administered or self-administered under your pharmacy benefit and infused drugs through your medical benefit. Guide. Okay. There's a, a little bit of spillover. So it's, you know, I think there are some oral therapies like capecitabine is paid for under Medicare Part B, but that's because it existed before Medicare Part D existed. So there are some weird like exceptions to the rule, but I think generally that rule is a fair way to think of it. And we're going to get to your, uh, I mean, I, you know, you had a very nice article talking about generics and Medicare Part, Part D, and, and I, I want to spend some time on this. But, but I want to, before I do that, Stacey, when you try to look at a program, you know, when you put your academic hat and you really want to critically appraise the success or the failure of a program, and I, I'm the first to agree that there is no absolutes, right? Nothing is 100%. Some of these are all relative. What, what is it that you want to see to decide that Medicare Part D has been successful versus has been a failure? And we need just to think completely, let's start from scratch. How, how, do, you, how do you assess this from a health policy and an academic perspective? So... You know, one way to think about it is how are beneficiaries feeling about the program? And, and they have done a lot of, the government has done a lot of assessments of how beneficiaries feel about Medicare Part D. 
And by and large, people really love it. Um, it works really well for most people. You know, it covers their drugs pretty generously. Before Medicare Part D existed, we didn't really have health insurance for drugs for seniors, which is kind of mind blowing right now that you'd be like, oh wait, that happened in 2006. That's not that long ago. Before then we just didn't have a plan. So like half of seniors had no pharmacy benefit coverage. That just, it seems totally, you know, outlandish. So this program, when you look at kind of the average person, you know, a lot of, they're taking a lot of medications, but many of them are cheaper generic drugs. You know, you've got your chronic disease medications and they tend to be able to pick plans that cover them pretty well. A lot of Medicare Part D plans have no premiums. So you can get enrolled in a plan without paying a monthly cost. So that's great. The problem is that for people who need really expensive drugs, it doesn't work at all. And that group of people tends to be a group that you really kind of miss when you're trying to understand like across everybody who's enrolled, how do people think it's going? It's like, well, if you only get a few people with, you know, who need a really expensive cancer drug who respond to that survey, you're really missing this big picture of like that group is not doing well. Like they can't afford their medications on this program. And that's the group I worry about. It's the group that's underrepresented when we're trying to understand like how well the benefit works. Got it. So generic scheme, you know, I mean, many moons ago, and um, obviously, I mean, everyone, you know, was very um, happy with this. And, and I think, you and I know there has been many papers out there to to show that they have decreased healthcare costs to an extent, and and in fact, I mean I've done a lot of work with biosimilars. A lot, of, you know, a lot of folks say one of the attraction to biosimilars is contrasting to how generics lowered some of the overall healthcare costs. So maybe we should use biosimilars in oncology. It may have the same thing, and and you know it's 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 um, it's a whole debate on the biosimilar stuff. What's, what's your, you know, take us to generics prior to Medicare Part D, so prior to 2006 and their impact, and then how were they incorporated into Medicare Part D? And then, and then obviously you were very critical uh, in your last article in the New Journal Medicine into their, you know, uh, how this was all integrated. So I think that would be a good historical piece for generics and what led you to writing this paper. In general, generic competition is fantastic. It's kind of one of the reasons why we tolerate higher prices is because of the promise of generic entry for lowering spending on drugs. So pre-Medicare Part D, no problems. You know, we have chronic disease medications like cardiovascular drugs that are coming out as generics. We have a large number of manufacturers who jump into the market and it drives the price down fast. So typically what we expect in the generic drug market is really robust competition, very low prices relative to what the brand was costing us, and then quick adoption of these products. So that has historically worked really well for pills, like the small molecule drugs, like you know, we haven't had many challenges. 
But one of the things that, you know, some colleagues and I have been concerned about for a few years is like, well, what about these drugs where there's less competition? Because some research has shown that the level of competition for generic manufacturers, so you need more than one generic drug company making the product to get price competition. And it turns out you actually need at least four is kind of where the FDA and other researchers have pinpointed. Like before that, you know, the companies could actually keep their price relatively high. Like they may not compete with each other on price. So the price doesn't come down. So some colleagues and I have been concerned that for cancer drugs, maybe you won't get quite as many companies interested in making generics. And then the price for the generic stays high for too long. So we've looked at this for Gleevec and imatinib, it's generic, and have found that it really had a stubbornly high price, at least the prices paid by like Medicare and other commercial health plans for quite a while, like a couple of years after the generic was available. This is in contrast with more traditional generics where the price stays high for six months as the generic has an exclusivity period where they can be the only generic on the market and then the price just drops off a cliff. If, if you have more generic companies. Exactly. Right. And typically that's not a problem. So like for cardiovascular drugs, for diabetes, for places where we have like huge populations who need treatment, we have not seen, you know, that those kind of limited entrants. But for imatinib, until I think it was at least two years after the generic first got on the market, we only had three manufacturers who were making generics. So the price started coming down more substantially once we got the fourth generic entrant. So that's good news. Now, the complicating factor is, and the thing we criticize pretty heavily in the piece in New England Journal is more about the Medicare Part D benefit itself. So this goes back to how the donut hole was closed by the Affordable Care Act. So with the closure of the donut hole, they put into place that 50% manufacturer discount. The Trump administration raised that to 70% manufacturer discount. And then ultimately those dollars count as patient out-of-pocket spending. So as a patient, if you have to spend $6,600 or $6,550 to get to the catastrophic coverage phase, if a drug manufacturer is paying several thousand dollars of that, when you use a brand name drug, you get to the catastrophic phase of the benefit faster. Now, a reminder, when you hit that phase, you only pay 5% of the drug's price at that point and beyond. So, and when we're talking about a drug like Gleevec, it's so expensive that you go through all of the phases of the benefit in your first fill. So like you fill one prescription and you're at the catastrophic phase. For the generic drug. And 5% and of a drug that let's say it's a 10,000 or $15,000 a month yeah. is still high. I mean, it's not. It's still high, yes. So that's a separate problem that we will address. <laughs> um, that's still very high, but 
Then you look at what happened with the generic drug and the fact that nobody, you don't get that incentive. So instead of having to pay, you know, you have to actually pay $6,550 out of pocket to reach the catastrophic phase because there is no manufacturer discount that's lowering your out-of-pocket spending. So this can mean that you spend an extra several thousand dollars to get to the catastrophic phase. And even though the list price of the generic is cheaper, you have to pay so much more of it during the coverage gap that you end up spending more money if you get prescribed the generic just because of the way that policy was changed. It's madness because the generic is actually lower priced. We want everyone to take generic drugs, but instead we have this really messed up policy that incentivizes branded drug use. Interesting. You can tell I'm still mad about it. <laughs> what is, well, appropriately so though, but what is, uh, like when it comes to generics versus uh, brand drug and, you know, imatinib is an example, obviously there are many examples, but on average, what's the when you talk about these expensive drugs, what's the difference in price? I mean, did you factor this in, in terms of the difference between generic yeah. and brand in your looking at the calculations? Yes. So we used actual prices paid by the Medicare program, which are the basis of calculating how much the patient pays. And because eventually there was good competition between the brand and generic, the brand name drug like if you look at the generics price relative to the brand, it was an 80% discount in the most recent time period we looked at. So you saw this big price drop, but you barely saw any difference in what the patient paid. So at that point, once Medicare was paying only you know 80% less for the generic, you saw that patients started to pay, their out-of-pocket costs would be slightly lower for the generic than the brand. But above that level, you know, when the price for the generic was pretty high and close to the brand name drugs price, patients actually spent more for the generic than they did for the brand. This is, uh, this is uh, a little bit of a mind-boggling twist here. <laughs> I know. It's, uh... I'm, I'm, I'm imagining some of my listeners have a pen and paper like I do right now. I'm trying, trying to figure out some <laughs> calculations there. Yeah, it's, I think it's very frustrating because it is so counterintuitive and it's not the message we want either patients or providers to have. The other thing that I think is also frustrating for a consumer is that Medicare Part D plans stopped covering the brand. So over that same time period where patients were still paying more if they got prescribed the generic than they did the brand, their plans may not even give them the choice of taking the brand that would have been cheaper for them. Instead, they only have the option to take the generic. And, you know, in general, when we think about generic competition, that's something we should encourage, right? Like we want plans to really shift everybody to the generics. But in this case, it's like, you're just further penalizing someone who has been taking this incredibly expensive but life-saving drug. Now a generic's available. Everybody's excited because finally you're going to see the prices drop. And guess what? Your out-of-pocket costs go up. And you can't switch back to the brand to save a little bit of money in the meantime. So 
I will say the good news is, is that because we got more generic competition several years after the generic became available, now the price for the generic is lower than the brand, finally, but not by very much. So again, it kind of is like, it ends on a good note. So for all your listeners who are practicing and maybe prescribing, choose the generic. <laughs> it's still cheap. It's cheaper now. But it is this kind of frustration that you can't count on that, that the benefit is set up in such a way that like, you may actually have people paying more. And then one other caveat is we know that a lot of people get assistance programs to help offset their costs. And when a generic is available, suddenly the assistance programs for that product, that brand name drug go away. So there may not even be opportunities to help people in the traditional ways that you think about. So like you wanna use this drug, now it has a generic. The generic isn't much cheaper or it may be more expensive and you can't get patient's assistance. It's kind of like this perfect storm of policies really breaking and certainly need some help. Very interesting. Have you heard anything from the Biden administration in terms of any plans pertaining to Medicare Part D? So they have a plan and it's actually one that has come up under the Trump administration as well and in some of the major drug pricing reform bills from 2019 that would put an out-of-pocket cap on Medicare Part D. So this would actually help a lot. And the other part of that is it simplifies the benefit. So you no longer have these four different phases with different groups contributing. It's a much more simple benefit and you get rid of the whole like manufacturers pay for brands, but not for generics, like all that gets fixed. So that was put forward in what the- have, What have you heard the maximum out of pocket? Uh, so Biden's plans have not specified an exact level, but in the legislation that was drafted, so in HR3 that was voted on in the House in 2019, they had a $2,000 out-of-pocket maximum for beneficiaries. In the Senate Finance Committee's draft legislation that you know was bipartisan, they had a $3,100 out-of-pocket cap. So I would guess that Biden would be somewhere between those two or maybe would lean more towards what was put forward in the House bill as the $2,000 out-of-pocket. I mean, that would be a huge difference. That's a big um, difference. That's a big difference. Yeah. And today, I mean, as you know, you probably know, if you have one cancer drug on the Medicare Part D benefit, you could be looking at tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket for the beneficiary yes. just for one orally administered cancer drug because their prices per fill are so high. So, and that's for brand name drugs. That includes all the coverage gap discounts and everything like that. So, Stacey, one of the questions that always puzzles me, and and you know, I wonder how much of an economist will need to answer this. But but to me, um, when we talk about coverage and drug prices, I think we can both agree that what most important is usually out of pocket cost because that's really what matters to patients the most, and it affects their livelihood and their adherence and all of that trickle uh, trickle effect. 
But when you try to, I mean, as, as a policy expert, if you're trying to look at the overall cost to society at large or healthcare spending and all of the GDPs and formulas that we talk about, the generics continue to, to, to help, right? I mean, I think the generics issue that you talked about for Medicare Part D is affecting out-of-pocket cost to patients, but you, they still have a positive net effect on society spending for healthcare, no? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, what, at least after the prices have dropped substantially, they start to have a better benefit for Medicare, the program, and for other health insurance plans. So this is one reason why we encourage generic drug use and lower cost drugs versus higher cost drugs is because there is the reality that when we spend a lot on drugs for an individual person, everybody is paying for that in the health plan. So, you know, it's not like the health insurance company is losing money, they increase your premiums. So, you know, you've got always have this tension of when you want to make a benefit more generous for some people, you are asking everyone else who's covered to pay more. And then you start to run into these risk factors of, well, what if people decide they don't want to enroll because now they're paying too much for a plan that they don't really feel like they need? So, you know, if you have Medicare beneficiaries who delay enrolling into the program who are pretty healthy, like that just sort of starts to then mean that who is still in the plan are more expensive. So then you have to keep raising premiums. So you end up in this really bad situation. So I think that we tend to have, you know, we talk a lot about changing and improving and lowering out-of-pocket costs, but people don't really think as much about the other side of that. Like that's going to come back to us in the form of some additional payment. So you can't, there's no free lunch in, in this space. Yeah. I mean, somebody has to pay for this. Maybe let me, I mean, I think, um, in the next uh, few minutes before we conclude, um, we've talked about uh, generics and so forth. Maybe um, again, as we are changing political landscape, we've heard a lot over the past couple of years, at least from the Trump administration pertaining to holding manufacturers accountable and trying to lower the drug prices. We're not talking generics or just in general. And then I don't know what's going on right now with the change in administration. What's, what's your thoughts into what's going on there in terms of trying to either Medicare negotiate drug prices, no idea if I'll see this in my lifetime, or even lowering drug prices where, you know, like the HR3 bill and, and other mm-hmm. things. Is this, is this now with the changes, where do you think this is going? Yeah, so I think that That'll depend quite a lot on the Senate races in Georgia and whether or not there's a narrow majority for Democrats. And if that happens, then there's maybe more of a possibility that you'd see drug price negotiations included in a bill. I think it's a really big reach to try to get bipartisan support on negotiating drug prices. And I do think that there is something to be said for um, the timing of that type of request. You know, we have asked a lot of the pharmaceutical industry this year, and they have delivered very nicely on what appeared to be very um, efficacious 
vaccines for COVID. So I think it, it then kind of bolsters arguments around, you know, prices and innovation and the need to be able to have all these handsome rewards and a lot of upside to encourage development of drugs. So I think there's still interest and an appetite in pursuing drug price negotiations, but that is certainly more progressive policy. I think more likely there was um, bipartisan interest, same as with the changing the Medicare Part D benefit, there were also in both the House and the Senate bills on drug pricing in 2019, there was a limit on price increases. And I think that could be something that comes out again, possibly in bipartisan legislation. In that case, it doesn't do anything to address the underlying price of a drug when it comes onto the market, but it says you can't raise the price faster than inflation. So with cancer drugs, for example, we know that the prices go up faster than inflation. And when you do that on the Medicare program, the companies would have to pay that money back. We have a similar policy in the Medicaid program and it's a huge source of savings. So it kind of makes sense that we would think about doing something like that for you know another public payer for Medicare. Oh boy, that's a that's a lot of stuff happening. Keeps you, huh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anything that I should have asked you, Stacy, that I may have missed, or do you think we have a good rounded uh, description of what you wanted the general public, maybe who have not read your paper? And I always, you know, I always obviously from a, you know, not everybody reads the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, <laughs> I think I always say. Um, that's why I appreciate when, for example, you do um, a thread on your Twitter handle to make sure people read it. Because let's face it, we want to reach more uh, people to read this. And that's why we're taping this also, because I'd like more people to, to know about this. So anything I missed, anything you want to share with us before we let you go back to uh, writing another paper? Um, yeah, I think we've hit all the highlights. I mean, I, I think that it's totally normal for people to find this confusing. And part of the reason is, is that this work is showing how counterintuitive and broken the policies are. So when you read that and it doesn't make sense to you, that's kind of the point <laughs> is that it doesn't make sense. It needs to be fixed. So I think, um, you know, I guess I'm optimistic that there could be some policy policy change in the next couple of years that help to improve at least the access for people with cancer. But, you know, I think maybe one last point is, you know, one of the frustrations I feel when looking at people with cancer who are on Medicare is whether or not you're facing these incredibly high costs can be predicted by something as simple as whether or not your drug is orally administered versus infused. And probably many people in your audience know that that isn't based on your choice as a patient as much as it's based on the type of cancer that you have. And so, you know, I find that when you think, well, if you have this tumor type, you would get this drug and it's gonna cost you $15,000 a year versus this other drug that's infused and it costs you much less. But part of that is just this difference between whether or not your treatments are covered under your medical benefit or your pharmacy benefit. 
And for Medicare beneficiaries, we've done a huge disservice by not limiting out-of-pocket spending on the pharmacy benefit. Like there's just no way for people to get a plan that protects them. And I think I'm hopeful that we'll see positive changes for at least for people with cancer and other complex illness. Once I see you looking for a job uh, in national parks, I know we fixed everything. Until That's then, right. <laughs> once I see you tweeting and saying, anybody looking for someone to work in national parks, I know we were cheated. Look, That's fair. Uh, thank you so much. I, you're very generous with your time and you always um, you know, give us a lot of time. So I really appreciate it. We're taping this in the end of December. We're gonna air it the first week of January. So happy holidays to you and the family. And I hope, um, Next year will be much better than this year, right? We have to we have to have a barrier than 2020. I think so. I, I hope so. <laughs> Thank right. you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you learned a lot from Dr. Dusitzina as much as I learned. It is always a treat to have her on the podcast, and she is always welcome to return anytime she chooses to return to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to get some feedback from you. You can send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com and you see a link there to all current and previous episodes of this podcast as well as prior podcast. And you can see some of the scientific articles that I authored or co-authored and I would love to hear your feedback or comments. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. And let me know what you think and how we can improve to meet and exceed your expectations and your podcasting experience. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite statements from Winston Churchill. Politics is more dangerous than war. For in war... You are only killed once. Until next time, take care of yourselves.